Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever other good podcasts are sold, as well as with video here on YouTube. Hey, everybody, welcome back to my show. And as you can see, I am welcoming me back guest Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian. Ah, <laughs> yeah, he's channeling his uh, Russian oligarch here, uh, his, his inner Russian uh, oligarch. So we are talking business and uh, Scientology and destructive cults. Now, here's the thing. We, um, Cyprian and I have had a few talks about legal matters uh, surrounding Scientology and cults, and, and he has been, um, as a, uh, you know, fully legitimate lawyer ad- operating out of Washington, D.C., uh, specializing mainly in federal-level cases, yeah? My interest is in administrative law. Great. Okay, perfect. Well, on that note, Cyprian emailed me and suggested that we do a talk, a a podcast, or perhaps a series of them about certain specific aspects of management and running the organization of Scientology or running a destructive cult in general. But here we're going to talk very specifically about Scientology uh, its management style, its management system, and the and the way that it sort of violates basic human rights and 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 premises of of good business, even. And I thought that um, you know we we were talking about this, and he actually suggested to me a series of things that we might go over on this. And I am all about getting help putting my content together, so I was more than happy for Cyprian to suggest these things to me. And we thought, and I thought, what a big, what a great way to discuss, you know, destructive cults are not destructive just because they have weird, odd beliefs that you don't agree with. That's not what makes them abusive and 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 crazy. It's it's what they do to their followers and what they do in the practice of the religion, faith, organization, group, rules, however you want to put it, because they're not just religious groups out there. But Scientology is a sort of semi-faux religious group. So we get the I'd like to chime in on that. (laughs) Because as someone who's never been a Scientologist, I find it fascinating because of its parallels with other totalitarian groups, like communism. I as you can probably guess from my name, I might have a little bit of uh, experience with it, like being born in a former communist country, yep. which was communist at the time. And just seeing some of the parallels of how people analyze things, administered things, and the kind of emotional workup that dissuaded people from critical analysis seems very similar. The old challenge of trying to figure out what the guys in the Kremlin are thinking is a lot different now, but you get the same vibe of trying to understand the secretive totalitarian rulers by looking at David Miscavige and modern Scientology. Big time. Big time. And that's the lesson here. That's what we can, that's what we have to offer to the world in analyzing and breaking this stuff down is what you see in Scientology, what you see in in communist governments, what you see in you know in the Maoist regime in North Korea, are all shades of each other. 
they're all it's all it's all on the same kind of authoritarian spectrum and so you're going to see similarities of of behavior and ideals and uh practices and 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 the inefficiency of these groups, the way that they misuse their human capital, if you want to talk in strictly business terms, right, is so teeth-gnashingly frustrating, you know, just from an efficiency point of view, much less from the human rights point of view, right? And so, so let's go ahead and talk about some of these points because we've got quite a few to go through with this. Um, first one being the factor of of loyalty. Now you mentioned this as a um, you know dis- difference between institutional loyalty versus personal loyalty. What were you? Um, go ahead and clarify what you're what you were thinking on that. Well, and bear in mind this is coming out of my military experience. But there are two main ways of thinking about loyalty. One of them is to the institution or the cause. And these transcend whoever is in that chain of command or whoever is in charge of you personally. Mm-hmm. And another is personal loyalty. Are you loyal? Or do you not care about the other stuff, but you trust your boss? Or is it uh, you're loyal to the people around you, even if you don't like your boss or anything else? Right. And these are powerful personal factors. And if none of them exist, none of them exist, a person might not feel much obligation to do what they should. Well, that's that's right. Or if a person is committed to the cause, but not their leader, they might disobey their leader in the interests of the cause. Mm -hmm. And the reverse may be true. That's one reason why I found a bit about... uh, there being a program by which a number of Scientologists had facilities ready if L. Ron Hubbard were to appear tomorrow. It's a sign of their enduring loyalty to L. Ron Hubbard, mm-hmm. not David Miscavige. That's right. And you get other situations like Mark Headley where uh, musical chairs. He could see what was going on, so he rigged it so his boss would have an easier time. Mm. That was a, That was some display of his loyalty towards his boss, Versus David Miscavige. Sure, and well, I think I think you're going to see lots of variations of that throughout. Oh, absolutely! You know, throughout People have multiple thing. loyalties. Exactly, they have multiple ideas. But here's what I can say, at least to start talking about that, which is that the loyalties in a destructive cult like Scientology are muddy. They are confusing. Um, on purpose, by design, I believe they are that way. I think that I think the leadership, I think somebody like an L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige, can leverage this this back and forth between individual loyalty to them as an individual, as a person, uh, developing that cult of personality that they want, uh, that which is all about personal loyalty and dom- and you know and dominating others and them you know letting you do that to them and that kind of thing. And then you have the um, the group, the loyalty to the group itself, that which in this case would be the Church of Scientology or the philosophy of Scientology, because they often think of it these two things as as um, 
Well, because it's kind of three, there's three different kind of loyalties that you see manifest throughout Scientology, which is the man, which is the loyalty to the individuals, the L. Ron Hubbard or the David Miscavige, um, loyalty to the organization as an organization, the Church of Scientology, and then the subject matter, the dogma, the, the tech of Scientology, which L. Ron Hubbard took great pains to describe as its own thing, its own, like the tech is always going to exist, the books, the lectures, it's always going to be there regardless of what the organization's doing. So um, so some people, like independent Scientologists, people who leave Scientology because they get fed up with Miscavige or the organization, some of them are Hubbard loyalists, and they describe themselves that way. I'm loyal to L. Ron Hubbard, and I saw that his goals and ideals were being violated by Miscavige, and that's what caused me to leave. Others are more loyal to the tech and not the individuals. They'll badmouth L. Ron Hubbard as independent Scientologists. Yeah, Hubbard, Schmubbard, you know, whatever. But the tech is so valuable. It's so important. It's so good that that this is what I am holding on to and and uh, and and keeping and I would agree with that characterization. Yeah. Uh, when I saw all the things that Miscavige has changed, I had to ask, were the people going along with it feeling that they were loyal to Hubbard or loyal to Miscavige? Because some of their claims were mutually incompatible. Well, and that's where they become loyal to the tech as their way of of sort of sorting that out because they think well this is you know how they find out about some of hubbard's proclivities or hubbard's you know nonsense the the, the bigamy or the, the the serial philandering or the financial fraud or the war wounds but not even ever bad happening. people can do great things well that's how they justify it they then go well he was a son of a bitch but he's our son of a bitch and and uh yeah he's you know it's kind of like the the um the, the Trumpian loyalty, it's like, yeah, we know he's a dick. We know he's a liar. We know he's an adulterer. We know there's all this multiple, stuff. We don't care. multiple issues right? with Trump. No, no, I know. Uh, but there is this factor of an, an open acknowledgement on the part of evangelicals or people who have moral codes. I mean, that, there's, there's you know. someone as a useful tool to further the cause versus he is the only tool to further the cause. Yeah, but they don't look at people like Hubbard and Trump as tools. They look at them as um, flawed geniuses, maybe. (laughs) Some people think of him as a genius because they've bought into his business hype, but... Right. Well, that's right. uh, And same with Hubbard. They bought into all of his rhetoric about what a great philosopher, scientist, discoverer, researcher he is, even though he, you know, in the same way that you can look at like an Isaac Newton, right? Like uh, Newton was was just, hey, there's no way you can look at what, points. yeah, you, there's no way you can look at what Newton did in terms of calculus and gravity and all that and go, well, the guy was an idiot. I mean, they're just, they're, he clearly wasn't. When it came to those subjects, there were other subjects he was a complete moron on, right? And a product of his times. So, I mean, good grief, trying to chase down counterfeiters at the at uh, the Bank of England. Yeah, well, I, th- I think he got into, involved in a few other. <laughs> yeah, I'm messing with too. you. I'm messing with you. Exactly. But uh, point is that you know there is no such thing as the perfect person. You know, the ideal you know cult leader. 
Um, but they make them out to be that way. And um, they have to, they might, my, I guess where I'm going with this is they might acknowledge, I've talked to independent Scientologists who absolutely acknowledge Hubbard was a son of a bitch. He was, he was unethical, immoral, not a good guy. Doesn't matter. Look at what he discovered. Look at what he came up with, right? And so they're not necessarily loyal to Hubbard's memory or everything he said and wrote is absolutely the literal truth. You do run into a lot of people like that. But they do believe that everything he wrote about Dianetics and Scientology is the delivered word of, 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 of revelation. They're loyal to the promise of Scientology yeah. that Hubbard put forward, even if they acknowledge him as not ideally a point of loyalty. Exactly, exactly. They try to, they try to take pains to differentiate these two things. Other and, people, of course, other independent Scientologists, and of course a whole boatload of Scientologists, are intensely loyal to the memory of L. Ron Hubbard as an individual. They admire him greatly, think he was a genius, think he was a you know near demigod. And um, and he's the only person who was able, through force of will and character and and uh, you know whatever else, able to forge this path, you know, trail trailblaze this path through the darkness of of our ignorance, and get us this path out of you know this trap of the physical. And universe. are they necessarily looking at the path because they may not have? But Hubbard himself was a pretty charismatic guy. He was able to spin a story very quickly mm -hmm. and he was probably smarter than a lot of the people around him and yeah in a world in which people are desperate for a direction uh grasping onto the smartest uh, excuse me uh grabbing onto the smartest person you see and trying to follow them everywhere is a strategy i won't say it's a great strategy but it's something that people do that's right that's right. And Hubbard was probably the smartest guy in a lot of rooms. And, I mean, I think Hubbard was perceived as the smartest person in a lot of rooms. That doesn't mean he was. And uh, but but perception is reality in those situations, and that's and that so it might as well have been that way. I mean, when people are invalidating themselves, making less of themselves, you know, uh, smart is not the same thing as competent. Well, yeah, amongst many other, or wisdom or lots of other things. You know, charisma charisma takes you a long way, and Hubbard had that. He had he had whatever he had with that. As person, they say, flattery know. will get you everywhere. Yeah. That's right, especially with somebody like him. And um, and they were all about, you know, and this word loyalty is important because it comes up over and over again when you are studying narcissism or you're studying authoritarian, you know, these high control leader types, these people who gather followers and 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 impose rigid disciplinary and authoritarian systems of control. They this thing that they have in common one to another to another is are these intense demands for loyalty. And it's the most hypocritical thing you'll ever encounter because they don't give any loyalty. They they turn on a dime and will throw anybody under the bus in order to save themselves, but they will demand that you sacrifice yourself for their good, and then they will reframe it. And here's here's where things get interesting and very muddled and confused. 
on the question of institutional versus versus personal loyalty is they will demand that you throw yourself on your sword for the good of the organization. They're constantly muddling or confusing and blurring the lines between their good and the good of the organization or cult that they founded. And sometimes that is done deliberately. Yeah. Uh, out of an acknowledgement that some people who do not have a lot of institutional loyalty will nonetheless gravitate to whoever's got the cult of personality. That's right. Or the other way around. Here's a person who's really more loyal to the organization, its goals and purposes. They want a world without insanity, war, and criminality. But they think L. Ron Hubbard might not necessarily, or David Miscavige, might not necessarily be the guy who's going to get him there. But then push comes to shove and some kind of crisis situation or emergency situation, and the leadership will always demand personal loyalty over organizational loyalty, but they'll frame it as organizational loyalty, if that makes and sense. It does. Yeah. And that's a persistent issue. Uh, at least a number of communist governments had leaders develop a cult of personality as a plan. Not an accident. It was planned. Mm. Uh, like, like, what do you mean? Uh, like, do you have an example? I think a lot of what of? Stalin did mm -hmm. was was wasn't just cultivated by Stalin. It was cultivated by people below him. Oh, that and makes complete was an, sense. Yeah, it was an yeah. era when the Czar was a larger than life character. Yeah. And coming out of that, there were still a lot of people who thought in terms of personalities of looking for one big leader, not a huge bureaucratic system. Right. In fact, the huge bureaucratic system uh, was not something a lot of people adapted to well. Well, uh, I don't think it. I don't think it communicates well to people. It's hard to be loyal to a, a, a you know, a Brazilian democratic, you know, like Brazil meaning the movie, right? The movie Brazil, like they, you know, this crazy bureaucracy. Nineteen eighty four set in nineteen eighty four. Yeah, this like wacko, you know, where every paper is more important than the person it re it relates to. I mean. This is this kind of bureaucratic system is very hard to create any empathy or compassion or sympathy for, but an individual can can symbolize hopes, dreams, goals, purposes in a way that a that a bureaucratic structure never could. You know, right? So we so tend to up, think with the personalities is where I'm kind of going with that. So you ended up with efforts to invoke loyalty based on both pathways. Yeah. One is, okay, the party has a lot of structures to try to analyze things. And with that amount of information gathering and analysis, their decision is surely right. Mm -hmm. Which will convince a few people. On the other hand, we have a great guy at top. And by celebrating his achievements and making him a larger-than-life character, uh, we can really build a sense of identity with him. Because people sure aren't going to identify with the constant requests for information and quotas. Exactly. Exactly. It's something that people can relate to. And we're always going to have that need because we can relate to a human better than we can relate to a system or a group of people. It's very hard to do that, you know. Um, conceptually, it's hard for us to do that. It's a lot easier to just, you know, w take a person or idea and that thing or that person symbolizes or centralizes all of our thinking about that 
that group or topic or government. This, you know, this is this goes on in the U.S. all day long. I mean, this is all we do anymore is is talk about personalities rather than <gasps> issues. God. We don't even talk about issues anymore, really, or about you know much less about systems. And I think it has oh, a lot yeah. to do. The with last five years have been really miserable for trying to get particular particularized issues analyzed. Exactly, but 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 I'm 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 pointing this out not just to rant or complain. This is by design. See, this kind of, of pushing people to, to focus only on the individuals is to the cult leaders, to the, to the person in charge, this is 1,000% to their advantage because they want all the power that is represented by this system, that, that, that the system that they run or control, whether it's the Church of Scientology, U.S. government, Russian government, whatever, these groups – you know, when we can personify them as an individual, that means that that person becomes as as same same as the power and authority of the entire group. You, you know, the president. You, we take everything that's represented by the United States and we throw it into one guy, the president. Even though the president of the United States has no authority to do, you know, 75% of the things people think the president can do. I mean, true. You know? The bully par- the bully pulpit is a powerful one, but most of that power comes from all the attention they get. Yeah. Big time. And they, and for somebody who lives on and needs that level of attention in order for their ego to be satisfied and for them to feel personally and emotionally fulfilled, that's very that's a problem. You know? And that ability to draw the compliance of people through personal loyalty can be a powerful tool to manipulate people with more institutional or loyalty to the cause. Yes, exactly. Because it David Miscavige may be a terrible person in the eyes of many people, but if he's a guy who can keep on bringing in donations and who can keep on providing the tech, I'm sure there's people who tolerate him uh, simply because of the fact that without him, you'd probably lose a lot of that, at least in the short term, compliance from ordinary Scientologists. Which is exactly why, that's, that's spot on, and that's exactly why Scientologists continue to stick with him, is as long as he can make them perceive that he's in charge, he's running the show, he's competently expanding Scientology, as long as they think that those things are true, he's golden. He can do no wrong. He can declare as many people as he needs to. He can get rid of as many SP executives. He can throw as many people into as many holes as he wants to because he represents the future of Scientology in these people's eyes. And that's the role he took over in 1987 when he took over Scientology. And he's been fulfilling it ever since in the eyes of the Scientologists. So, so their loyalty, you know, is to the organization, it's to him. It's confused in their minds on purpose as to which is which. They, they, one is the other, you know. And that's going bottom up. Mm-hmm. But there's also the top down. Mm-hmm. So for some leaders, it's, Okay, I know you don't like me, but as long as you do what I need you to do, we're okay. Yeah. But then there's others 
and I would like to, again, use an example from David Miscavige, yeah. is where uh, the leader gets angry at someone and uses a pretext to establish personal dominance without establishing a reason why they should be loyal to them. Mm. So Jeff Hawkins told a story about mm-hmm. when he was briefing David Miscavige. And David Miscavige laughed at him and started to pummel him. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Hawkins was sitting back thinking, but this is a $500 shirt. He didn't try fighting David Miscavige. Uh, and then David Miscavige got up and uh, uh, looked to his bodyguard saying, did you see how he looked at me? That's all about trying to give the impression of interpersonal power and justifying it as that's, being a personal note. What, but not what about what, how, however, uh, uh, Jeff Hawkins was doing his job for the organization. Oh, yeah. No, that's the domination thing. That's the David Miscavige has to dominate people. And he's and but that's. Mm-hmm. That's especially common when you have a person with a strange attention craving in a in a position like that. Absolutely. This is the why this is the reason why we are, you know, why we focus on and try to deconstruct or figure out the personalities of these personalities of these of these of these narcissistic type people like we're trying to figure out what makes these guys tick and and what drives them and dominating other people absolutely is is a primary driving force with these folks it's not about it you know david miscavige isn't about expanding scientology or about growing an organization or running a religious movement or or saving the world or on some you know mission to to save mankind. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. It's very, very clear that his thing is dominate other people in his environment. There was a thing you said there that actually is it's kind of important that I wanna that I want to bring up where you mentioned his bodyguards were, you know, were were uh were, were standing behind him. Actually in the in the situation with Jeff, it's worse because um, there weren't there weren't bodyguards around him when he was beaten up on Jeff. There were just other Sea Org members. This was just these were just in conference rooms at the Int base, and so it was private. It was it was secret because it was just it wasn't like he you know it, it, Miscavige was paying these people off. These are people who are making twenty bucks, fifty bucks a week. Are you talking about uh, Master at Arms or uh, uh, just other people? Just other executives. Both. And just the other Sea Org members who are around, whether they're the security forces or whether they are uh, other executives, they're they're just Sea Org members. Oh. And, and what I'm just talking in terms of loyalties, what you have there is a bunch of people who are convinced that this guy who's beaten the shit out of Jeff Hawkins in the middle of a meeting that has nothing to do with beating people up. I mean, it's just out of nowhere. He just starts getting physically violent. They go along with that because they see in this little man, this little dictator, the future of Scientology. They're on board because they bought into the whole belief set. They bought into the fact that Scientology is going to save the world, and this man is the leader. So if he's beaten up on somebody, it must be the case that that guy deserves it. Because it can't be the case 
that were saving the world and following this little man who is who's crazy. It, it I'll agree be, that it takes right? a little more faith. It takes a little more acknowledgement of doubt to believe that the leader of the organization saving the world is not. Exactly. And, and it's when they start thinking that way, it's when they allow themselves to start thinking, wait a minute, this guy might be a nut. <laughs> that's I mean, the there's... beginning of the end for a lot of these guys, right? Because that's when they, oh, okay. And then, the, and then the light starts coming in, right? But it's, 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 it's frustrating and amazing and surprising how long somebody can maintain loyalty to what they think is a good cause or a good organization or a, a you know, a dedicated thing. Um in the face of, you know, just wave after wave of evidence that it's not that, you know, you just really, it, it's just amazing how dedicated some people can be. Well, you know? one of the complicating factors is how you detect disloyalty. Mm. Because uh, for some people, criticism can never be divorced from uh, the ultimate end result. So uh, one of the complicating factors for people in a communist country was, okay, if I criticize how this specific thing is handled, will that be viewed as an attack on the cause as a whole? Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of people ended up in gulags. That's right. Oh, and, and another part of that is the uncertainty, the unpredictability of what's going to happen to you in your criticisms. Because you can, you know, it's all about the leader being able to trip you up at any moment. They have to keep you on your toes. They have to keep you walking on eggshells. So sometimes you can be critical and they're okay with it. More often, you can't be critical and... Um, you know, see so those times you get away with it, you're like, oh, well, maybe I can, you know, and then you try to speak up at another time and you get bitch slapped or you get put down or you get, you know, or you actually get called on the carpet for being disloyal. How dare you? How could you? Bloom. <laughs> right? You, for people who don't get the reference, uh, Mao initially announced a policy of allowing open criticism within the within the Communist Party yep, uh, with the slogan, let a hundred flowers bloom, ah. where you could have a hundred different ideas uh, that people could openly discuss. Yep. And that lasted for a while, and then people who expressed uh, disliked opinions were promptly punished. It That's was right. largely concluded to have been a cynical ploy to identify who might actually be disagreeing with. Bingo, exactly. See, they, they lay these little traps. You know, and this is the thing about the way these guys operate is they give you a little bit, you think you're going to get more, you know, then you're getting slapped, then you're getting punished, then you're getting beaten down. And then they give you a little bit and you think, uh, 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 yeah, that, that, slap you back down again, right? And it's just this cycle. And it's just, it, it is just amazing how long people will hold on to this before they'll realize what's actually happening to them. And that's probably much more deliberate at the top levels than the bottom levels. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the bottom levels, you can still have an interesting phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So Vaclav Havel recounted a time in which he was, he and a bunch of other people were sent to work at a brewery. Mm. And most people there were not particularly motivated. They didn't want to become brewers. They wanted to do other things. But the government had sent them there uh, to get them out of uh, civic life. So they were going to put in their hours and then try to evade whatever they could. But there was one guy who really loved brewing, who put in a lot of effort to try to design better brews, who tried to make it the best brewery ever. And he was annoying because a lot of people there didn't want to do that. Right. So mm-hmm. guess who got punished? It wasn't even the guys who were political dissidents. It was the guy who made more work for other people by constantly bringing up his ideas for, okay, we can do a, a, a lot better if we put in more effort. Right. The guy wasn't a communist. The guy wasn't a dissident. The guy was just someone who loved brewing. But he was annoying. So he got slapped down with the same measures meant to punish the dissidents. Interesting. Well, there is such a thing as being too much of a go-getter, I suppose. (laughs) Which was the case, but here's the thing. When loyalty becomes synonymous with cooperation, you can have the same push for improvement being punished as disloyalty. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, you have a system. I mean, that happens within a system, which is about punishing people more than it is about rewarding ingenuity initiative you know which was one issue of course the rewards were a whole nother issue yeah exactly um yeah and when people know they're not going to be rewarded in the system no matter how hard they work then they get very cynical about it you know and i'm pretty sure that's has something to do with that story too you know because then it becomes because then everything gets reversed then bad becomes good black becomes white and initiative becomes evil you know that that issue did somewhat exist yeah um it's a little more complicated than the everybody got paid equally they didn't get paid equally but there certainly were a lot more incentives against uh taking initiative yeah that's that's the point right because that happened to me i mean within the world of scientology i got slapped down many 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 times and this is what happens is you have policy policy says be creative show initiative show responsibility take charge do your job do it with vim and vigor and energy and life this is what hubbard says he says do this you know this is how you're supposed to approach your post so then you do that oh yeah no you can't do this no you can't do that no you need to sign this in triplicate before you'll have permission to do that nobody's here to give you that permission anyway and we don't have the forms in triplicate so no you don't get to do that and and this and this and this and this and this. And, and after a while, some of you, that you know. is inevitable, inevitable as part of a self-regulating bureaucracy. And some of it is just self-destructive, like yeah. your earlier account of, oh, God, somebody died on the purification rundown. We need to investigate this. Right. That is an instinct that is loyal to the tech, that is loyal to to trying to achieve the end goals of Scientology. And even if it means a little more scrutiny for the institution, it will achieve its goals. Exactly. So so to then find out 
that actually the priority is, no, we don't want any inspection of our organization or criticism or skepticism. So you're going to shut the fuck up and you're going to go get in line is what's going to happen. And there was no investigation allowed because the tech actually isn't the most important thing in Scientology. They just say that it is. And that kind, that kind of loyalty class yeah. is one of those things I find probably accounts for a lot of people's realization that the totalitarian group they're in is actually a bad thing. Well, exactly. When they realize they're not doing the simple things to try to ensure the goals are achieved. That's right. And, and in fact, doing the exact opposite. No, we're not going to investigate this. In fact, we're going to cover it up. And you're like, wait a second. So I can't. So not only can I not investigate it, I can't even talk about it. This never happened as far as the organization is officially concerned. And since I'm an official of the organization, that means I don't get to talk about it ever again. But you also get a a loyalty to Hubbard versus loyalty to Miscavige aspect to it as well. You because do. didn't Hubbard set up a uh, research function for uh, uh, continental management to track down? Oh, yeah, uh, errors. absolutely. And that's the thing is you, you're given this system of investigation and reporting. And then you find out, yeah, but only when we say you can. <laughs> but that was right? sent down straight by Hubbard. Yeah, well, you yeah, know. I, presumably these people are loyalty to Hubbard and Miss Gavard. Right. Well, it's those conflicts that cause that dissonance to happen, which causes people's heads to explode, which causes people to leave. And that's why these groups are self-destructive. This is this is part of the self-destructive formula of of destructive cults like Scientology. Is they they the the internal double binds and the contradictions in their own policies written by the founder, modified or written by Miscavige. They, 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 they don't gel. They don't integrate well together. And the, and the reason is because the, the purpose of the activity is not what, the, what they say the purpose of the activity is. And this is, this is why destructive cults fail more, way more often than they succeed. We see some spectacular examples of evolutionary growth and change, and, and, and over decades and centuries, we see certain groups, a couple groups, Mormons, JWs, Christianity, evolve and grow from destructive cults to something bigger and more mainstream. But we see thousands and thousands of theological disagreements, but I get what you're saying. Okay, well, I'm just saying that only a few have survived, and most— die off very quickly, you know, within a lifetime or two of their founder. And and we see this, we see this documented over and over and over again, right? So it's, um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the destruction that's built into these groups isn't necessarily obvious or self-evident to people. It takes a little analysis to see it, but it's there. They all, they, they, they destroy themselves so quickly most of the time. You know, and then with all the exposure and stuff like what us former members do, it just speeds up the process, right? Because it's part of the part of the whole thing. Well, one of the things I found very interesting, at least in studying the Western reactions to communism, was I assume you've heard of Khrushchev's uh, Stalin speech. 
I've that heard was, which which speech are we referring to? It was a famous speech in which Khrushchev denounced Stalin and his abuses. I've heard that this happened. I have not heard the speech, but I've heard it happened. It was a landslide when it came to uh, how communism was administered internally and for the satellite states. Okay. But it also drastically changed Western communist parties. Before the Stalin speech, uh, communism was very popular in French intellectual circles. Mm. After the speech, it became uh, much less popular. What year was this that this that this was done? I want to say the nineteen fifty-three. Uh, okay, around that time period. Yes. Uh, and what was, the, what was the point of what he was saying, that Stalin wasn't all that? Uh, that he had uh, committed a number of uh, appalling things. Uh, it was on the cult of personality and its consequences. Oh, okay. Uh, you can see a, a few uh, similarities. And huh. it was in 1955. There we go. Okay, 1955. And Stalin died in 1953. Well, uh, I don't think uh, Khrushchev would have been able to give the speech uh, when Stalin was still alive. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, right? De-Stalinization. There's a whole Wikipedia article on it. A series right. of political reforms after the death of Stalin in 53. Right. Like Khrushchev shocked his listeners by denouncing Stalin's dictatorial rule and his cult of personality is inconsistent with communist principles. Interesting. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Khrushchev was – there was an attempt to assassinate Khrushchev by some Soviet naval officers. Oh, no doubt. I mean there it, this, sounds, this sounds, who, sounds like Vatican II for communism. You know, I like, would disagree with that characterization. OK. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just throwing it out. It's off the cuff here. Uh, Massive reform that caused a great deal of controversy is what I mean by that. For those of us, for those <laughs> listeners who aren't familiar with this, I'm a pretty conservative Christian. Chris Shelton is a pretty staunch atheist. Yeah. Uh, we disagree on a lot of points, but we have productive dialogue. Yes, we do. So, um, so Vatican II is not a good example, but you know what I mean. I, I would mean, disagree with. Okay, fair enough. But a controversial statement by an authority figure denouncing earlier practices or saying that we're going to change things at, that was quite what I'm I'm sure stirred up all kinds of loyalties on the part of Stalinists, on the part of communists, on the part of people who thought Stalin was communism, on the part of people who thought. That it wasn't. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of. Uh, it was a big issue. I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. So you ended up with a lot of tangled situations, such as okay, the people who've been sent to the gulags by Stalin were supposed to be released and sent home. How did the people around them react? A lot of people were suspicious of the people who returned from the gulags. Of Some of it was probably because they had benefited by being promoted in their absence. Mm -hmm. Part of it was probably because if a person's been in prison for years, they've probably had some worrying adaptations to prison life, like a certain willingness to uh, fight over a loaf of bread. 
Well, actually, actually, let me let me suggest something slightly different here. Okay, yes, there are all the specifics of reasons why people can be suspicious, but I think that it actually sits right on what we've been talking about this whole time, which is loyalty. Um, okay, you have a group. Okay, Scientologists, communism, right? Soviet Russia, two different groups, very very similar structures very very similar practices and where you have people in the soviet russia returning from gulags you have scientologists or sea org members returning from the rpf there's a reason why i brought that topic up yeah right because it's same same you get sent off to the gulag because you were not loyal now the specifics of your disloyalty might be completely made up might be completely somebody's imagination. Doesn't matter. You did something that pissed off somebody in a wrong, bad way. And that person had enough authority to punish you by removing you from the situation. That was true for the gulags. That was true for how the RPF works in Scientology and the Sea Org. Same thing. What you do doesn't isn't really what gets you there. It's the circumstances and, and pissing off the wrong people at the wrong time that gets you there. And you are then perceived as disloyal. In the minds of everybody, you were sent to the RPF because you, it was your fault. You're the one who messed up. And there's just this weird thing that people do where they just, okay, he must have deserved it. He must have deserved it. And the same thinking applies with disconnection and, and SP declares in Scientology too. You know, there's always this, oh, well, he must have deserved it. So I, so it's no surprise to me at all that people coming back from the gulags were treated with suspicion and, and, and you know, distrust and because they were disloyal. Same with the RPF. You get off the RPF, you've paid your debt to Scientology, <laughs> but you haven't. You have to do a whole liability formula. You have to take months after you get off the RPF proving to all the Sea Org members that you're now working with that you are now a good, loyal Sea Org member. You have to prove it to them. It's not enough you finish the RPF program. So uh, there's a whole uh, – that's just, that's just the beginning of your reintroduction into the group again. So I, I just can't help but, but draw the parallel there. And, yeah, there's a reason why I brought it up. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of parallels with communism in Scientology. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and this is, um, I mean, you know, I, I, it, it's, it's all a matter of perception and propaganda. This is how the masses are controlled. This is how you do it. Is you form, you, you know, you, you create a group or an ideal or an identity and you say, okay, we're all going to be this now. We're all going to be Scientologists. We're all going to be good communists. We're all going to be good Americans, you know, and how do you end up spitting on and hating Vietnam veterans coming back from this atrocious war that they were sent off to? Well, you, you label them all as baby killers and scumbags and horrible people, and now they're not Americans anymore. They're disloyal to the American ideal. You know, you went over there and you didn't soldier properly as far as I'm concerned, so you're scum, and we're not going to – and we're, uh, you know, kicking you out. Uh, there's a kind of complicated thing here because a lot of the people labeling Vietnam veterans as baby killers, et cetera, 
were people who were opposed to the war and who associated any soldier with the uh, leadership uh, directing the war. Yeah, right. That's right. They, they didn't make that distinction in their head. That's right. Which is one, I think that's one of the major factors in uh, what causes a lot of bad thinking. But the other part is the counter reaction. Mm-hmm. So when Lieutenant Kelly committed an atrocity at Milai, uh, there were a lot of people who couldn't tell that what Lieutenant Kelly did was an actual massacre rather than just being another hyperbolic accusation by the same people who spat on returning soldiers. Right. You ended up with kind of one extreme pushing the other group to ignore actual atrocities, which, of course, when people ignore an actual atrocity, that gets taken very seriously. Yep. That's very disturbing and worrying. Exactly. But it actually started out as a counterreaction to the to one extreme. And both sides and the, and the kind of goofy thing on on the loyalty theme is that both sides feel that they are being loyal to or following the ideals of what they were doing, you know, carrying out the counter, you know, the, the, the protesters or, well, no, it's a re, you know, it's an American thing to protest. I'm a real American because this is an illegal war. How dare they, you know, and then you got these these troops over there. No, I'm a loyal, patriotic American. I'm fighting the good fight because this is what my country is telling me to do. And I'm here because the law told me to be here. That's right. I didn't have a choice. That's right. I'm stuck here anyway. But I'm being a loyal American. I'm not skipping off to Canada. I'm not skipping off to Mexico. I'm doing, you know, I'm being the good person. I'm being a good person. And both sides think they're being the good person. You know, yeah. that's what's that's what's so crazy making about this is there is they'll kill each other convinced they're the good person. And you know? depending on how they define the ideals of the country, they may both be right. Well, uh, yeah, I know. Right. Sometimes this really is a difference of theories and values. That's right. That's right. But they'll kill each other over it. Yep. You know, or at least beat each other up. I mean, they'll literally come to blows over this. Remember Gorbachev? The KGB tried a coup against him. The KGB, Gorbachev accurately pointed out that as things were going, the Soviet Union was going to disintegrate because the economy was being destroyed by the repression and corruption going on. They had to debureaucratize. They had to uh, cut down on the repression if they wanted people to get any work done. Meanwhile, the KGB pointed out, hey, we've got a lot of people who want to uh, separate. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, forces who want to disband the Soviet Union. And we've got a lot of people who hate communism. And if we cut down on the repression, the Soviet Union won't be around in it much longer. Both of those observations were right. And Gorbachev tried cutting back on the KGB, and the KGB tried launching a coup against Gorbachev. I remember that. They were both trying to save the Soviet Union. Right. But they couldn't agree on how. Right. Right. Interesting stuff, isn't it? What a powerful motivating force it is. Well, you know? it's uh, cer- certainly interesting to see how somebody like uh, David Miscavige got to be the 
loyalty object of Scientology. Isn't it? And one would have expected it of so many other people. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating how these things happen. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's just, it's like this glue that holds things together, you know, but it can, but it's, but it can be the thing that also can be the driving force that tears the whole thing apart. You know, Lifton wrote a book, which I haven't read yet. I'm dying to, to get to it called destroying the world to save it. Sort of a, you know, follow uh, book to Robert J. Lifton's the guy who wrote um, thought reform in the uh, psychology of totalism. So he, and wrote, he also wrote the Nazi doctors on how German doctors uh, perverted their medical oath to save life to the horrific ends of Nazism. That's right. That's right. Well, you also find this, I mean, in all studies of that have been done of the um, of the Nazi regime, you, you, you find this it, it, details of this just absolutely horrifying how people can destroy the world to save it. They're absolutely positive that they are on the on the side of good, on the side of right. And this is why we really can't trust ourselves when it comes to our own moral righteousness. We are so bad at that. And I'm just, I, you know, if, if there's a lesson to be learned here, I think it's that, you know, when you are anyone, I believe this to be true. I believe this to be almost an absolute truth, and there are very few absolute truths. Um, but I believe it to be almost an absolute truth, at least right now, that um, that we're, we're just incapable of, uh, of objectively you know, uh, evaluating ourselves on moral, on moral grounds, because we, 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 we get this idea that we're good people, that we're on the side of right and that everything that we're doing, because we're part of this group or organization or idea, or have this ideals, or we hold this belief set that this makes us this righteous, good, wonderful person. And, um, and the most destructive, horrible stuff gets done in the name of that every day. The old observation that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and the person who believes he's uh, trying to help you may be the most uh, persistent of tyrants. Exactly. Let's so, remember the French Revolution uh, came after theories about how to build a perfect society through terror. Interesting. Interesting. It's not an old concept. Sorry, it, 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 it is an old concept, yes. <laughs> but it's one that gets repeated, frankly, uh, generation after generation, because it really takes a lot of experience to recognize what's going on. Yeah, it does. And a lot of education. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot, a lot more than I think people realize. It takes a lot of introspection, a lot of analysis, a lot of critical thinking to you know, to really examine yourself and where you're coming from and what you want in life. And I believe that this kind of introspection and evaluation of self is, is vital. I think it's important. I think it's really valuable that we, that we sit down and figure ourselves out to some degree because then we can stop fooling ourselves. It takes a, it takes a, a real work to, to stop fooling yourself about how good you are. <laughs> no. But on and the I, flip side, <laughs> then you end up with the whole self-criticism sessions and how dangerous those things can be. True that. True that. 
And and you can take, you know, you can go too far either way. Of course you can. But I just, I really uh, feel the need to highlight today that, you know, there is too much of a good thing. You can, you can help yourself up too much on yourself and on your group and on your ideals and how great it all is. And you can miss the forest for the trees. You really can. And it's, and it's no. really shocking how blind some people can be on this. I'd point, like to put know? it a different way. It's, uh, it's one thing to be right about a direction of something. It's quite another to be right about the scale and how it is to be done. Yeah. Remember the recent GameStop saga? A lot of companies accurately bet that GameStop, GameStop's stock would go down. Mm-hmm. They did not accurately calculate how far it would go down and when. And because they were investing lots of money on a specific guess, they lost money. They would have, they would have, they guessed the direction correctly, but they lost because they didn't guess the timing and mechanism of it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing applies to whenever you're trying to build something. So a lot of effort was put into collective farms. People tried to make it work. They brought in experts and tried to calculate it from a, from a mechanical engineering perspective. But it didn't work because the planners didn't factor in human attention and sense of investment in it. The psychology. They, they missed stuff, and you will always miss stuff. Right. They, so they looked at it from a mechanical perspective and not a psychological perspective. Correct. And what, what, I'm curious, since you brought this up, what was the, what do you mean? Like, what, what, what happened with that? What, I, I wasn't aware that collective farming I mean, was still a thing at all. The collective farm? Collective farming, uh, yeah, what, what you were bringing up there. Well, uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, there was a proposal of do we uh, try to centralize the economy more or do we allow things to decentralize? Uh. And Stalin ended up siding with the, we we centralize more. We try to uh, collectivize more. We try to send, we try to build big collectives that will provide not just economic activity, but social service. Okay. So we instituted several different plans of collective farms. But here's the thing. A lot of peasants, when they found that they were going to lose everything, just ended up killing and eating their animals. They'd have a few uh, good months of eating uh, before they'd lose everything. And when the farms ran, it was kind of hard to get any effective supervision or accounting uh, or the like, because people didn't feel that they would benefit by working more. Mm. And eventually, it, it was found that whenever the Soviet Union wanted to increase agricultural output, they let people have private plots of land that they could farm and sell the produce of. Interesting. So whereas on paper, academically, it might have appeared that you had this mechanical solution that was going to work out and everybody was going to produce this much food. And if we did that by average, everything would be great and nobody wanted to do it. But you privatize and then suddenly there's incentive. Everybody's got a theory about how it'll work. Right. And quite often those theories are wrong. Right. <laughs> as, as the saying goes, the life of the law is not logic, it is experience. Yep, exactly. However, when people, criti- when people uh, 
see criticism based on past experience, if they have unquestioning faith in their theory, they can treat it as disloyalty. Yep. So, well, you know, Cyprian, the only reason communism has never really worked is because nobody's ever really done it, you see. And I'd like to show them the people who <laughs> gave countless hours and worked hundreds of hours a week. Sorry, over 100 hours a week to make it work. Right. They tried. They really did try. I'm sure they did. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't work because it doesn't work. It sounds great. It, it goes sounds... down to information flow, but we didn't mm. really start studying information flow as a particular concept until the end of uh, the end of the 90s. It just wasn't really understood outside of a handful of economists. Right. Well, I, I think you make a great point, which is that it might sound great. You might have a fervent belief in it. You might be absolutely 100%, 1,000% sure that what you got is the, is the world's biggest mousetrap and everybody's going to beat a world, you know, a path to your door. And, and it's absolutely positively going to work better than anything has ever worked before. And then you try to institute it. And guess what? You know, it all falls apart because you And when it fails, do you assume that the critics were sabotaging it or do you assume that the critics were legitimate in their concerns? I think the answer because, to that question is how good of a critical thinker are you and how much do you apply yourself to And if you're particularly paranoid, yeah, you, you know. can conclude that it was sabotage and they're disloyal and exactly. And this is what we call the fundamental attribution error. And what people I call do. that the prelude to a lot of political violence. Same thing. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, uh, cult meltdowns, you know, Jonestown. I mean, these things are not disrelated. So when, when you have a program fail in Scientology, and I'm assuming there's a lot of them that do. Yeah. Uh is a person who was in charge of a failing program blamed for being not dedicated enough? Absolutely. A hundred percent of the time. And that's built into, again, this is built into the DNA of the system. Hubbard wrote it into the system that you find who and what they did and, and why they're disloyal, why they're out ethics, why they were counter intention. It always has to be that way. There always has to be a person there who was disloyal, who was counterintention. And some of that, I think, is down to a lack of imagination, of being able to imagine that there are multiple reasons why something can fail. And some of it is probably down to just being a freaking egomaniac. Well, I think that's where I was going to go with that, is I think it has to do with the short-sighted vindictiveness of egomaniacs, right? It's like, I said it should be this way. The physical universe, you know, the world at large isn't a green. It's not, you know, just because you wanted it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Well, if I want it and, and I tell you to go do it, then you come back to me and tell me it can't be done. Clearly, you're the problem. <laughs> right? And it takes experience and detail to recognize all the things that are ambiguous, all the things that could go wrong, all the reasons why a dedicated person can fail. That's right. That's right. But but see, that's the thing. In these groups, it's never about that. It's all it's it's practically a characteristic of a destructive cult. You can practically judge it based on this behavior uh singled out. And it's yeah. also called one of the characteristics of a toxic leader. And 
yeah. other organizations. Same. This is not an isolated thing. That's right. But it is particularly observable in a cult like Scientology. Exactly. Which is why it's worth highlighting and why there's a lesson to be learned there for all of us out there. Because this is not just about how bad Scientology is. This is, I think we've drawn enough references and, 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 and comparatives here to show that this that this kind of thing is, you know, very broadly applicable to all of us. I'm trying to I'm trying to highlight these connect these dots more often in my shows here for people because I've been talking about this stuff for years and I still have people listen to my content who happen to think that I'm just talking about Scientology. Oh, look at Scientology. Look at how weird it is. Oh, look at Scientology. Look at how evil it is. Oh, look at Scientology. Look at how bad it is. One of the things you know, that struck me with one interview was a person mentioning how uh, one musician had volunteered to help produce a, a video for Scientology. Mm-hmm. And he didn't get a place to say he wasn't compensated for his expenses. And, okay, that doesn't sound particularly horrible like a bunch of other Scientology stories. But, no, part of part of this is that they're just bad bosses. Exactly. And those bad boss traits contribute to a whole bunch of other problems. You got it. It's not isolated. Exactly. And that right there is why we're doing this podcast and the series of podcasts that we're going to be doing. Because we're going to wrap this one up right now on this point of loyalty. I think we managed to talk for uh, just on this one thing. We, we weren't sure on this list of talking points that we have on this, on this topic how far we were going to get. I thought we were going to get farther than that, <laughs> but I want to keep the shows down to about an hour each, and we've got a whole list of things that we're going to be talking about because there's all kinds of other stuff here connected to this that ties into um, these points we're talking about. There is um, you know, short-term stress, long-term stress, sleep deprivation. Um, you know, crunch times, all kinds of little things, these little mechanisms that get utilized to control people, mess with people's heads, and um, mess with their with their lives. And um, and I think they all fit under the broad umbrella of bad leadership, <laughs> toxic leadership. You know, so we're gonna we're gonna break these things down and in, in as we go through this little series of, of podcasts here for you guys and talk about how these things play out in Scientology, other parts of the world, you know, do a little compare contrast, and maybe as a result of that we will have educated a little bit more on some of this stuff. So that's the point. And, rem- and remember, if you're not with us, <laughs> you're just another person, okay? Yeah. No, they're against us. Every one of them. They're all against us. <laughs> all right, Cyprian, thank you very much for taking the time to participate in this with me and and uh, and and sharing your ideas with me because I think we've I, I think we've got some 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 good stuff here. So, thanks for your help. And with that. I want to thank all of you who have invited us into your home this week to listen to us ramble on. And if you like the show, like my channel, like my podcast, enjoy what I'm doing, then do think about uh, supporting the show and the channel through Patreon or through PayPal. It is you guys. This is entirely fan funded. I am 100% reliant on you guys. This is my job. So that being said, uh, check out the links below to Patreon or PayPal. All right. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.